It's time to accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 662, 662 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of a record. I have two great conversations lined up for you today. Join me first with Chris Ahrens. Chris is co-author of a book titled The Digital Helix, Transforming Your Organization's DNA to Thrive in the Digital Age. And then following my talk with Chris is another in my series of weekly conversations with my partner in crime, Bridget Gleason. And this week, Bridget and I are talking about what motivates salespeople to work hard, what motivates you to work hard and put in the long hours. So you have to stick around and learn more about both these topics. Today's show is brought to you in part by our friends at Discover.org. The Discover.org platform is a game changer for sales and marketing professionals. The feature-rich sales intelligence platform is supported by over 250 researchers who continually update contact data and provide account-specific insights to help sales and marketing teams break ahead of the pack. See the product live at discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. Okay, joining me on the first segment on our show this week is Chris Ahrens. Chris is a partner at Inc.Digital and co-author of The Digital Helix, Transforming Your Organization's DNA to Thrive in the Digital Age. In our conversation today, we're going to dig into this whole notion of digital transformation, you know, what it is and more particularly what it isn't, because there's a lot of people trying to substitute sort of half measures for and say that's transformation. We're also going to talk about why it is much an economic transformation of an enterprise as much as it is an organizational transformation. In fact, perhaps even more of an economic transformation. And to that point, we're going to talk about the digital opportunities that are really the drivers or should be the drivers of digital transformation. Okay, here we go. Chris Ahrens, welcome to Accelerate. Glad to be here. Well, so... Um, yeah, you're joining us from Austin, Texas? That is correct. All right. So, yeah, we were just talking before the, uh, we were on there about the joys of traffic in big cities. Austin gained notoriety recently about that. Not that, not that every big city is, doesn't have its problems, but uh, it'd be worth it for the, um, if you could spend all your time commuting to Franklin Barbecue, I think, though. That that is worth it. That is yeah. worth it, and the expense, and the waiting in line, and the waiting line. As long as you were had some sort of guarantee that they actually had some when you got to the front of the line. So you get there at nine, you have a pretty good guarantee. Yeah, so much. Yeah. So all right. Well, good. Well, take a minute. Introduce yourself to to folks here. Uh, I'm Chris Ahrens. I'm a partner at Inc. Digital. Uh, we're a consulting firm, management consulting firm, and I'm the co-author of The Digital Helix, a book on how to transform your organization and to thrive digitally. Yeah, and I will tell the audience that it is an excellent book that I can recommend. And full title, The Digital Helix, Transforming Your Organization's DNA to Thrive in the Digital Age. And just going to start with a, a quote from the book saying, to yield the true promise of digital organizations much, must change the fundamentals of how they think, act, and behave. And you want to dig into that a little bit because as you talk, we use this term digital wrapping. Yeah. And I thought that was, it was a great description of what many companies do. Hey, let's buy an iPad for all of everybody on our sales team and thus we've gone digital. And as you said, that's, that's not digital transformation. Yeah, that uh, story you talked about comes from Michael Schrag, who's the head of MIT's um, digital initiative. And he famously went into an organization where they bought iPads for all their salespeople. And we both laughed because that's just so ridiculous. That giving an iPad to a salesperson just means you're taking the order on the iPad, but you're not taking any of the insights. You're not 
flowing that information back into manufacturing, into marketing, so that you actually have digital. And that's what really digital wrapping is about, is, you know, doing or paying lip, yeah, paying lip service to the, the digital effort without actually getting deep and getting the promise and the rewards that digital brings with it. Right. So sir, one thing I'm sort of interested is because is, a lot of it's been written about sort of the unprecedented pace of change that we have going on. And and un, undoubtedly it is in many cases. But, but we've also seen other periods of really substantial change, what at the time would appear unprecedented radical change. I mean – Look at our economy post World War II, right? I mean, going into World War II, we were largely in a, we were still an agrarian economy, right? About fifty percent of our GDP flowed from agriculture. Now it's what five percent of our GDP comes from agriculture. So the whole consumer culture, the mass mobility and migration within the United States. How did are there lessons you learned from how we adapted to that change to the way that we need to transform how we do things today? Um, I think there are lessons from every transformation. And we talk about the uh, transformation from sailing ships to steamships, which is a really um, good one because it changed what was physically possible, what what people and businesses could do when you got steam engines into steam, uh, sailing ships. And then you actually had full steam ships that could take larger amounts of cargo farther to more places, which opened up new markets. Um, the difference this time is that it is happening so quickly and that it is happening at such a way that you can't just buy technology or it's not happening in a nice ordered fashion. You use the point after World War II. Yes, we were mostly uh, an agricultural-based economy, but we had ramped up for the war. People were buying more cars. So it kind of integrated into society mm-hmm. over the 50s, over the late 40s, early 50s. This is really happening in a much more compressed time period. And the impact is almost immediately felt. So a company that really starts using digital, you look at Amazon, they know what you want before you want it. Target knows you're pregnant before you know you're pregnant or your wife's pregnant. Um, companies are starting to understand the value of insights, both internally and externally in the organization, and being able to deliver things and partner with their customers in a way that is almost seamless and wonderful and they're not even fully there yet for the most part. So it's happening so quickly, and the the benefits and the potential are exponential. They're not you know, just a, a, a check mark one or two, three uh, layers above where we were yesterday. Well, to some degree, it seems like transformation sort of becomes table stakes, right? I mean, yeah. <clears throat> I mean we've, we've I mean, it took it took a surprisingly long time for even PCs to to penetrate fully to the extent that I think people would be sort of surprised. I mean, I started working the PC industry right at the beginning with Apple, and you know, it was almost two decades before there was you know more than I think fifty percent penetration of PCs into households or something. So, and somewhat, yeah, we're twenty years into the internet revolution. So, what's what's clicking now? You know, is it just the you know reduced cost of the technology and and some of the apps that now that can be implemented that are really driving this? It, it's all come together. You can, uh, we talk about themes and streams, themes of information, streams of data that are omnipresent in any business, small, large, what have you. And so you can see social profiles, you can see buying behavior, you can track stuff online, you can see what websites they've gone to before they came to yours, how long they stay on a page, what they have bought, then you can combine that with psychographic demographic data, which is out there. You know, one of the things is that uh, 
um, grocery stores today, if they sometimes ask you for your zip code. If you give them your zip code, they can then build a profile with just that and your credit card information to really a scary degree so they know what you want. And that's how when you get coupons at the store that are printed on demand, mm-hmm. you're getting coupons that are really relevant to you because they've built a profile about all your shopping behavior, your credit card data, and everything else that's available online. And so it really is coming together in a way that it's almost seamless for businesses to take advantage of it. But we talked about digital wrapping. A lot of times people just do the bare minimum or they'll do it in one silo versus you know the entire company or they won't become digital at their core, which is really what it requires down to their DNA level, which we discuss in the book. And that's where you get the, the rich chocolatey goodness, the, the everything working together so that you're exponentially getting better and more wonderful in what you do, how you interact internally and externally and partnering with your customers. Yeah, it seems like one of the difficulties, though, is that, and I see this just in because we focus primarily on the sales space, right. but yeah, there's like a tremendous amount of data being generated. People really don't know how to use it. No. I mean, that, no. that to me, it seems like really the barrier to a lot of the, the benefits to transformation. And I wonder what this means in terms of you know, how you sort of have to staff your organization or build your organization, your team, is that is. Yeah, we're not very good with data as humans, right? Uh, we see we see causes where there's just correlations. You know, we we make assumptions that you know, aren't supported by the really by the data, and thus I think we miss a lot of the benefit of having that data. So how, how do you? It seems like that's a really critical component is to become more data savvy. Well, and with big data now, a lot of companies are data savvy. The problem is is that they don't have the right signal to noise ratio. That there's so much noise out there mm-hmm. that they what to look at. And so you start looking at every little thing and you find those weird correlations that don't exist or maybe do in one slice. And what you really need to understand are, we talk about in the book, the moments that matter to your customers. Because every buying individual or company has a portfolio of experiences they build. So if you're going to buy a car, if you're going to buy a computer, whatever it is, I may go to Google, I may go to Best Buy, I may go here, I may look on some social sites and build my criteria this way, and then I may purchase in this way. Totally unique to me. You could buy the exact same computer with the exact same requirements, and you would have a different experience that you would look through and go through. And so what companies need to do is within this theme and stream of data that they have available to them, really start understanding what moments matter to them and their customers, and then be there in the right way at the right time with the right content. And I'll I'll give you a very, I'll try to make a very quick example. We had a in the Bay Area that sold really wonderful software to allow companies to really speed up their internet connection and serve up content in a much more quick and robust way. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to be everywhere to everybody because everybody has a website. You know, every brand has sure. a website, every business website. And they're trying to be everybody. And then we looked at their data and we did some research and we asked some of their best customers and said, you know, what are the things that made you come and uh, talk to us? What are the things that made you buy us? And we really boiled it down at first um, blush to about 10 or 12 moments. When we bought this software, we saw how much our existing infrastructure was not capable of doing this. We started looking for other things. You guys came up as a possible option. Therefore, 
it was a great time for us to start talking. So that became a moment. Now our sales team didn't need to go looking everywhere all the time for um, somebody. They could say, if somebody bought this software, then we could... Um, we have a high chance of being a very likely target for them because they're going to find the frailty of their own infrastructure. So let's write a piece of software to go out and look for all the websites that have just recently added this in the last 30 days and let's cold call them Mm -hmm. because they need us. And so those 10 or 12 moments became what our sales team focused on for this company we were consulting for. And it became a huge real time saver and impact for the sales team because they were not constantly calling up people and saying, hey, here's what I got. Is this of any use to you at all? No, here's what I got because you guys bought this and you're probably seeing your content slowing down and your website not performing the way we can help that. Oh, interesting. Let's have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, companies like Datanize and and others that do that type of thing is right. They they, they scan who's acquired these technologies, who's contracted for these technologies. And yeah, that's good. Now you have a a smart digital sales team that's using the, the, the signal, not the noise, to really go. And then, of course, we built content around that. So now the guys and gals on the sales team could go out and say, hey, here's why we're better. Here's how we plug into this. Here's the benefit you could see running this exact package. And so they had a real way of going and selling to these individuals in these organizations that was, you know, in the right time, in the right moment Mm -hmm. with information to really get people interested. It changed how they sold. Well, I thought an interesting sort of long following that to maybe or expanding back from that just a little bit is uh, quote you again you have from Michael Michael Schrag in the book um, that digital transformation is a technical phrase for what is really an economic transformation. Yeah, and I think let's talk about that for a second because I think again people really don't perceive it that way. They think about it being more of a technological, making sure we have all the tools in place and so on. But it's it's much bigger than that. Yeah, and that's why companies fail because they look at it as a, you know, we just did a survey in uh, March of this year and it said that 40, 42% of people believe that buying more technology will make them digitally transformed, which is ridiculous because then the largest, most powerful companies on the planet would already be digitally transformed, right? Exactly, right. And, and they're not. Our research says that it's as, as, as many or as few as one in six are actually digitally transformed, and the five and six are struggling. In well, some cases, how do you know if you're transformed? I mean, transformed doesn't seem like a destination. It seems like uh, a way station along the way, right? It, it, is, a, it is a moving point, right? right. And, but this is self-reported. Like, do you feel like you guys are transformed as an organization? One in, five, one in six said no, or yes, we are, and five and six said no, we're not. Mm-hmm. From their own self-identification and reporting, they didn't feel like they were at a point where they were getting the most out of it or seeing a real return on investment to where they were getting greater than the sum of their parts value out of their transformational efforts. And that's really kind of the demarcation line is that if you're not getting value out of your transformational efforts that's greater than the sum of the parts because this should be exponential – then you're not getting it. And that goes back to the Michael Schrag thing is that this should be something that transforms what you do and how you do it and actually creates new possibilities, new markets, and new things that the company can do. You look at Amazon. I mean, who would have thought five, 10 years ago, AWS would have come from Amazon? I mean, ridiculous, right? Why would a company that's basically the world's largest retailer now become the world's largest hosting company? Mm -hmm. 
They recognized that customers needed this. They had the infrastructure and the missing piece in the hosting market was the self-service automation piece that they were excellent at because they had to build it for themselves. Well, if you're a, com- if you're a company saying, okay, we want to we wanna become digitally transformed, right? Let's say a small, mid-sized organization. And granted that it's just... You know, it's it's a way station. It's it's a it's a benchmark. You're gonna go through, and you're gonna continue to transform yourself. But how do you go about the process of identifying? Okay, if we reach this point, we're transformed. You know, well, how, do you, how, how do you identify what that is? I mean, what's the first step? Let's say a company should take to say, "All right, this is what we need to plan to do," because you know, it needs to be deliberate, right? This is not something yeah. that happens by accident. What are sort of those components? And, you know, part of it obviously getting the right people and so on on board. But but let's talk about that. So the biggest thing is a digital mindset. It's that we think about things digitally first, like the moments, like theme and stream, that when we build something, when we get data, it's all in how is this going to be connected back into the organization? What kind of outside um, information can we bring back in? How can we have not silos, but everybody working cooperatively and cross departmentally to share these insights so the sales learn something it can be transferred to marketing marketing can then make sure that it goes into production so we have a new better product in a quicker faster way and so a lot of it is just having that digital mindset which small to mid-sized businesses that start up today are digital natives by design because they have everything on per seat licenses and you can buy all this fractional stuff and you can get 99 designs as an art department and you can do everything almost virtually. I mean, a two, three-person company today can function like a hundred-person company did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And by virtue of having that digital mm-hmm. building and architecture to be able to do things so quickly and scale so immediately, they start with a better digital mindset than, you know, we were joking beforehand about Sears who announced that they're going to be selling stores online this week, which is the best thing Sears has done online ever. Mm-hmm. Right? So they have that old world mindset and new companies have this new world mindset where they look and then that becomes, okay, now what can we do? And you see that with Uber, Airbnb, you know, all of the, the success stories of the digital economy where they are literally finding new and better ways to use their infrastructure, sure. technology to enter new markets or capture bigger slices of old ones. Right. But our economy is still largely driven by a small manufacturer, you know, down the street, you know, been in business for 20 years. They've identified some real niches that they operate in successfully for them. You know, if they were to sit in a room with a whiteboard and say, okay, we want to plan how we get from here to being aha, digitally transformed. What would they start with? Well, first of all, it starts with understanding the data you have and getting closer to your customers, which digital allows you to do. So understand the data you have about all aspects of your business, not just sales, not just, okay. So your, what's, your manufacturing, uh, distribution, sales, customer support, service, support, um, everything. So understand what that is and then start using it in combinations together to understand where the, the, the signal and noise break apart and what you can actually use. And then get closer to your customers. I don't know how many times that, you know, you and I were talking about this earlier. You know, we work from home, but we get calls for our businesses all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know sometimes a guy or a gal calls me up with a sales pitch or somebody I've met and they never look me up on LinkedIn. 
Mm-hmm. Right. They, they don't know anything about me other than we've met once or sure. they got a number and something. So even just looking at the social profiles of your customers because they're out there and understanding all of these things and start thinking about how we can piece things together and do things that are automatic and seamless and transferred around the organization is a huge mental shift for even the smallest company to the largest company. And, you know, the, the example I like to give is that uh, I was with AT&T for 16 years as a cell phone customer. Mm-hmm. And oh. <laughs> okay. I called them up and I said, I'm thinking about switching because you guys seem like you're too expensive. I went to their website. I then went to T-Mobile from their website, Verizon from their website, Sprint from their website. Um, I called them up again. I said, hey, guys, this is way too expensive. I need to leave. I'm canceling my service. Okay. So I gave them, and I went to a store one time and asked the same question, thinking I might get a different response, which is me being stupid. Um, but I gave them all of these indications about what I wanted a 16 year customer who buys new iPhones as soon as they come out mm-hmm. on largest plan. I have five lines of service. I'm the kind of guy they would want to have. I'm a very good customer, credit yeah. card, everything. I give them all of this data. I'm presenting myself as somebody who's ready to leave. The day I call them up, the person I talked to on the phone could not have been more surprised that I was thinking about leaving. Could not have been. No indication that this would happen. And this is what any company should do. Tie those little bits and pieces together. You see me go to your website and then go to T-Mobile. There ought to be a red signal, klaxon horn over to the customer care team saying, we need to do something. This guy's going to jump. I called you on the phone and told you I was going to leave. Let's do it. And then when we have the good and the positive calls, let's figure out a way to make more customers, you know, have that good positive experience. What was like that? Was it a service? Something Mm -hmm. like that. It's tying everything together. It's nothing's incremental, nothing's disparate in a digital world. Right. Well, let's talk about the, you outlined seven drivers for the digital opportunity. And I want to run through some of those. So, because I think they're really important for people to sort of understand is, is uh, the first one is, you say, the compression of supply and demand enable near instant fulfillment. So, yes. tell, tell folks what that means. They, and you have some really interesting examples you talk about in the book. Well, you, um, I'll probably give you some new ones, but you know, today when people want something, they can almost instantly get it, whether it's a, a, a custom shoe, um, custom parts. I mean, Boeing now is building uh, print-on-demand parts for their, uh, their aircraft with 3D printers and things like that. So the act of wanting something and needing something and getting it in some cases, and it's becoming closer and closer, is becoming almost immediate. And what you're getting is customized to your exact needs at the same time. So the days of when we would, you know, produce something, put it out in the market, see what happens, and then shock among shocks, it would either be big, it would be, it would be a failure. Those kind of things happen almost immediately. And you look at Kickstarter and, you know, uh, Indiegogo and things like that. People can get feedback before they've even created a product. Yeah, they well, can get a real sense of what this product is going to do in the market just by the virtue of how much velocity or how little velocity has in a Kickstarter campaign. Well, and you used the example, I think it was earlier in the book, but still part of the same thing is that, uh, as at least when you wrote the book, is that uh, Nike's online business, fully 50% of the revenue was coming from customized products. Yeah. So people yeah. were tailoring, you know, and, and granted, it's minimal customization, but it's, you know, color and so on and so forth, but still customized. 
customized, completely customized. And uh, I was just in New York a little while ago. Adidas will do that for almost every shoe in their line now. And the customization is not just, you know, it's colors, it's soles, it's oh, really? all okay. things. And Nike's actually announced, and I think Adidas did as well earlier this year, or late last year, that they're going to be 3D printing custom shoes. You'll be able to get <laughs> custom shoes, which some professional athletes have today. Sure. You'll be able to get custom shoes. You and I will exactly the way we want them, you know, in terms of a density or a strike pattern mm-hmm. or anything else. And that means that we don't have to wait for anything. It basically comes to us customized. And, you know, yes, it may take two or three weeks. In the future, it may be we go into a store, we have our foot measured. In an hour or so, we come back like a pair of glasses. There's our customized shoe in exactly the customized way we wanted it from not only look and feel, but also function. Well, I think that's an opportunity for a lot of businesses to sort of think about what they could do, given the information they have or can mm-hmm. gather about their customers, to yeah, be more responsive relative to some sort of customized product or service that they offer. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's you know if you don't do it, that's the thing about digital, and we didn't talk, we kind of touched on it, but I, I don't think I gave it the service it deserves. If you don't do it, somebody else in your market's going to. And if it's not somebody else in your market, I just saw a statistic the other day that said, um, I think it was uh, one out of every six entrepreneurs comes from a large company and has worked there for about six years. Mm-hmm. And so these individuals see there's a need for a better mousetrap, either for the same market that this big company served or for an, an adjacent market because they have so much inside knowledge into this market. They decide, I'm just going to start a, a new company and go out and build it myself. Mm-hmm. And so you don't do it as a business, small, medium, or large, there will be somebody who does it. There will be somebody who is digital, who will enter your market, who will do things in a faster, more customized, more customer-centric way, more automated way that gives your customers exactly what they want and displace you either to a small degree, hopefully if you're... Or completely, right. Or completely, like Uber's done with taxis. You know, in sure. some, At some level, Uber and Lyft will be the taxi cabs and taxi cabs will cease to exist. And then automated cars or driverless cars will either be part of their solution or replace them. You know, one of the interesting things you asked uh, a little while ago was um, what happens when we're all digitally transformed? That's the real interesting question. Mm -hmm. When we're all digitally transformed, then what happens? We're not close to being there yet, so we don't have to worry about it. But then it is how quickly and how succinctly you can do everything in your business because at that point in time, it's going to be on such a fractional basis, the difference between one or the other, that you're going to have to be digitally transformed in such a way that it's almost amazing and miraculous what you can accomplish with your business. The second best guy is going to be just that close to you. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that, that people aren't factoring in when they think about digital transformation is they don't factor in the human element. Oftentimes, yeah. and I, I think the differentiation at that point in time when people are companies, let's say, are more completely digitally yep. transformed, it's the human element, right? Because that becomes a huge differentiator at that point in time. I mean, you could have oh, their digital today. experiences could, given that everybody's basically using the same tools to do these things, I theoretically could all be somewhat identical. But what's going what's gonna to be the differentiator? And I think it's going to be something that's driven by a human. It could be a contact for a customer service. It could be a sales interaction. It could be something that's driven by a person talking to another person. So we've written a couple of blogs on LinkedIn about this, which you can find on our website. Uh, but um, 
the human element in digital transformation is probably the most overlooked and the one that really contributes to the most to you becoming digital. You know, executives as digital explorers who are willing to experiment, who look to do things. And one of the things that um, I think that is really important in digital transformation is failure is good in digital transformation. The more that you try and experiment, the more that you fail and you celebrate failures and you learn from your failures, the better you become because digital allows almost instant and unlimited experimentation. Mm-hmm. So no longer do you have to you know, throw something out after six months, see what happens, regroup, try again next year. You can do something in an hour, in a minute, on a page of a website, take it down, recapitulate it, go back out to it. And so digital allows for the human element to do it in an exploratory way from the executive leadership and not just mandate it, but also from that digital mindset where people are constantly looking to push each other to see what more they can do with the digital tools, technology, and data and insights they have. And the companies that really recognize that and hire for it, not just try to convert old people, because some old people like me can be converted, but a lot of times you need to hire somebody new who gets it from the beginning, who's not going to be fighting you every t- uh, turn to be digital in their for, uh, their thought process. And so I think the human element, which you bring up, is incredibly important. I'm so glad you did. Well, I think there's another aspect of it, though, too, is that oftentimes what I see in companies that uh, are embracing digital is, yeah, they're getting all the signals and you know, they feel like they're in touch with their customers, but they never actually go out and talk to their customers. <laughs> and and that's a problem. And that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, what you talked about, human element, great. Taking another step is still, you know, when you're selling somebody something, unless it's purely a transaction that's handled online and B2B, in most cases, that's not the case yet, is still a person talking to a person. And so it's it's that lined with the digital experience that makes the whole customer experience really essential. Oh yeah, and and you look at Amazon how they have a maybe almost too digital, but it works because they're so in tune with what you want, what you're looking for, what you buy, what you come back for. They need a little bit more of the human element, I think, to kind of balance it out a little bit. But they're so far ahead in the digital, they get away with murder because they mm-hmm. are. Digitally, they are so good at seeing where you go. You know, even there, even things that you don't even realize, like their affiliate codes, tell you them where you're coming from, what you're looking at, Mm. what you're reading, and they understand and use that. So, yes, understanding that there's a human element to this is absolutely huge because at some level, you've got to be able to do something with this and push to an area that automation just isn't going to do for you just yet. Maybe in the future, maybe 20 years in the future, I don't know. But right now, a team of digital thinkers with the right technology really can blaze their own path in almost any market. And that's wonderful for all of us because that means we're going to get what we want and we're going to be better served as individuals and as businesses. Yeah, and I think that it, it, even for existing companies who are thinking about, hey, let's, let's do this, you know, let's talk about what this transformation means for us. If you're a smaller company, and the point you make in the book is digital levels the playing field. I mean, oh, your, abil- your ability to compete against the bigger guys goes up quite substantially if you handle this appropriately. And that's why I love that, um, that entrepreneur statistic that I was reading, uh, this article on entrepreneurs, is that individuals are seeing this and they're able to say, oh, well, I, maybe I can't compete squarely with my old company, but I clearly see there's a market for this 
I can test it before I leave the company. I can do all of these things digitally. I can put up a website. I can look big and impressive. I can pull data from all different places. And it really allows a robustness to the the business infrastructure that we all deal with or engage with. Mm -hmm. And it changes what's possible, not just for the business, but for all of us, which is what makes it so exciting for me personally, is that I can see a world where things are going to get better, faster, cheaper, more customized, and we're going to be able to do more as a society just because we're able to, because it's all there in front of us. That's my hope anyway, and I see it coming. All right. Well, that's a good wrap-up statement. But I have one more question, though. Is sure. uh, to, to, in response to a comment you made before is, and I think for for people listening to this is is there's this tendency to think about, you know, digital is a young person's game, and yeah. it's really not, right? Yeah. I mean, first of all, people, <laughs> yeah, I've been in technology my entire career. I've been in business for four decades, and you know, tech has been a central fact of life that whole time for you as well. So. Uh, yeah, don't let this sway you. Don't be intimidated by this. Um, if you have an idea for doing something new that's you know that could be digitally based, uh, read some f- data from the Ewing Kaufman Foundation that you know tracks entrepreneurship. That's fully a quarter of new businesses in the country. And we talked about these new businesses are more likely to be digitally enabled. Are started by people over fifty five. Well, and and that's the beauty of it is you you talk. Uh, I'm I'm fifty. I turned fifty in January. Um, you know, with my years of experience, the insights, all the companies I've worked for, I can see things happening. Now, if I can figure out a way to translate that and use the digital tools and technology and insights that are out there, I can do things so much quicker and so much faster. So I, I, I really don't think it's an age thing. It is a mindset thing. Is can you wrap your head around doing things in a new, faster digital way where everything is there and you're pulling and poking and you know manipulating data and streams and all of this stuff together and then putting things together and experimenting relentlessly you can really do wonderful things and I, i'm glad you brought that up because there are some really wonderful people who are 20 years old doing this there are really wonderful people who are 60 doing this and 80 and everywhere in between it's about the mindset it's not about the age or the birth certificate or anything like that yeah, twice as many tech startups started by people over fifty than under twenty-five. Yeah, that's where the that's where the knowledge is. That's where the knowledge is. So, yeah, people keep that in mind. All right, Chris, thank you very much. Been fun speaking with you. So, tell folks how they can find out more about you and learn more about your book. Certainly. So, the website is thedigitalhelix.com, and if you go to thedigitalhelix.com/slash/accelerate, we have a page for all your listeners, a chapter, some other stuff where they can download, uh, see some information, see some of the articles we've written on transformation, on some of the things we talk about in the book, and uh, get anything they really want from there. Good. And in a few weeks, we'll have sort of part two of this conversation on your co-author, Michael. Uh, is going to be on the show, and we'll continue talking about the digital helix for digital transformation. So, Chris, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Chris. That was Chris Ahrens, co-author of a really fascinating look at digital transformation titled The Digital Helix, Transforming Your Organization's DNA to Thrive in the Digital Age. Joining me next, as always at this time, is my friend, Bridget Gleason, VP of Sales at Logs.io. And today, Bridget and I are going to talk about the key motivators that drive sales professionals to strive to succeed, to sacrifice, to work the long hours. It's all about finding that sweet spot where the rewards are more than just financial, 
where you're motivated to make that extra call, help that customer, invest to learn more, to be relevant to your buyers in their pursuit of their business objectives. Okay, let's jump into it. Bridget, how are you doing? Andy, 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 as usual, the busy, crazy, hair on fire, and fantastic. (laughs) Overworked. Yeah, just worked. Just worked. Well... Yeah, but I mean, you, you, you're in the throes of startup hell, which is also startup heaven for some people as well, but it's uh, every minute booked. Yeah, and maybe just to let our listeners in on what happened five minutes before this, I, I am one, I don't like to be late to anything, and I like to keep my commitments, mm-hmm. and... I was late to meet with Andy. I honestly, I haven't had a a minute for the last four hours to get a drink of water or go to the bathroom, and I came as fast as I could. (laughs) We can put the recording on pause. That's Uh, all right. No no need. All right. All right. I mean, you don't even have have to take the microphone with you or anything. Just, you know, you let me know. You let me know. Yes, I will let you know. But this is... You know, when being in a startup that is uh, growing fast and lots happening, and and it's it's this is this is what it looks like. The being in a startup, you you end up wearing a lot of hats. Whether it's me or other people in the org, everybody's doing everybody's doing a lot of things. So yeah, um, it's hell, it's heaven, it's all of that rolled into one. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, it is what it is, sort of, and and you won't really have perspective on it till you're no longer Oops in it. Later, exactly. Yeah, that's how I always found as well. So, um, well, I thought we'd spend a few minutes today talking about uh, an event I was just at actually today, this morning in San Diego, was put on by Women Sales Pros, Lori Richardson, ah, and her group. Yes, and they had yes. a uh, Rev It Up Summit in San Diego. And they've done this regional, I know. And uh, yeah, some of our mutual friends and acquaintances talking, headlining Mary Lou Tyler, Alice Hyman, Julie Hansen, Lisa Dennis, uh, Joanne Black, and more. So, and while the content wasn't specifically for women sellers, I mean, it was women that were presenting. But one thing I learned there that was kind of disturbing is, and not even kind of, and I don't want to modify it like that, it is disturbing, is that that a statistic was mentioned that, according to one study, is over the last 10 years, the percentage of women in sales leadership roles has not increased. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, well, how, how can that be? How can that be still? Uh, that, that, uh, and, and uh, I know uh, you're going you're to tell me, but I just wanted to throw that out there. because And we've talked somewhat about it, but it's, it's, that still astonishes me. Why does it astonish you? What's okay? What's a good question? I mean, I'll <laughs> because, you, uh, because I'm Pollyanna, I don't know. Because, um, I mean, I know that, and it, and I wasn't talking specifically about the tech business, which you know we know that a lot of the SaaS companies serve you know in the valleys or a bro culture and so on. But, but uh, you know, there's been progress made on other fronts in terms of women in professions. It just seemed as if sales strikes have like there sales, been. Well, I think it's not saying it's great progress, but there's some progress. But it sounds like sales, right? But it sounds like sales is just standing still. Well, it's. I mean, obviously, I can't speak to the other 
professions. I'm not in them, but let's let's go back to how we started this call. <laughs> <laughs> busy, Crazy, busy, busy. Yes. Hair on fire. Busy, busy, busy. So I think about, you know, I'm not, it's not a time in my life when I am raising kids or have the demands of a family and... Which you've done. Which I've done. Right. But I wasn't a VP of sales at that time either. I I wasn't in a sales leadership role. I didn't do that. I had my own company and I had my own company so that I wouldn't have these demands and expectations because... Let me tell you something. If it were, if I was at a customer meeting and my kids were waiting for me, I would have walked out of the customer meeting. I know me. Mm-hmm. That, that was, that was my, that was, that was what, so I just didn't put myself in that situation. But I think there are, there are requirements, um, there are requirements of the job that I think do make it difficult um, for women at the various, at certain stages of their lives, particularly, um, I would think around having children that are going to pull them out of it and just think, ah, I, I, and, and so that derails them. It derails them. And then when you go and look at who's getting those positions, it's, it's the people who are going to get those positions are the ones that didn't put a pause or didn't take a step back or didn't keep, you know, keep their foot on the accelerator. And I, th- I think so there's, it, and maybe, maybe other positions, I, I don't, I, again, I don't know enough about other roles to know if it's friendly to it or not, but a lot of sales roles still require uh, travel and long hours, odd hours when the customer, they can be unpredictable when your customer's ready, when they sure. can do it. And so maybe I, I'm wondering, I'm speculating that that may have something to do with it. Well, I mean, you described something that you had friends that were attorneys that stopped out to, to have kids or had kids and had to reduce work hours. And, you know, they fell off the partner track. And no, I mean, in some cases, knowingly that, that they were, but... But then when they went back to, to work full-time, it was like that wasn't even an option for them, for many of them. You know, they could, uh, and it almost seems like, okay, well, that's where we are in sales is that, you know, if you're not uh, sort of in continuous service, I mean, you somehow lose out. I mean, what what was your journey like when you decided to come back after, you know, your kids reached, certain, reached a certain age and you're saying, okay, well, I want to go back full-time and work for a company again what was your journey like, and what what were sort of the barriers you faced at that time? Well, I mean, did, did people think, "Oh my gosh, you know, Bridget, you've sort of been out of it a little bit." I know you've been consulting; you've sort of been out of it. Or, you, you know, did you feel like you were obsolete, or or what? You know, what were the challenges? So, you know, I I I had a business, I sold a business, I consulted, and for me, my journey was I was consulting, and. I didn't, I didn't experience, I didn't experience barriers. I mean, I was, I was consulting. It was perfect. I could do the number of hours I wanted. I had a bunch of different clients. It was great. And for me, mine was a little bit more serendipitous. I, one of my clients just pushed to have me come on board full time. Mm -hmm. And I was really resistant. My youngest at that point was a sophomore in college. 
I had not worked for anyone, Andy, since my kids were maybe three and five. I mean, little. I worked on my own or consulted, and I was really in control of what I was doing. Um, so my youngest was at, was you know in college, and the CEO said to me, "Listen, you can go consult anytime." And he said, "What you haven't done," he pointed it out. What you haven't done is you haven't built a team and you haven't, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you've built a company, but that's different than building a sales team. And you haven't been part of a really fast growing startup. And there's a lot of things you can learn and you can always go back to consulting, but this is a gap in your resume. And part of me thought, I don't care. Well, I was going to say, yeah, the gap, assuming what? That you want to be CEO of a company? or. Right. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't really care. But what did get me was, all right, this is something I haven't done. Let me try it. Let me see how it goes. And, and I can always, and I, I took it thinking, okay, I have a full-time consulting engagement. It'll last as long as it lasts. And I think that lasted like almost five years. So it lasted a long time. Um, and so no, I guess I didn't. I didn't experience. I didn't experience it then. I would say, I feel it more maybe now that if I were to want a CRO role, which I don't, and I, I you and I've talked about mm-hmm. how at Logs I O we're hiring a CRO, right? And people have asked, "Gosh, how do you feel about that? What do you?" And there's a lot of people that have said. Well, definitely you could do the role. Why aren't you doing the role? And and I think part of it probably does go back to there are people with the same number of years working that have had a set of experiences related to sales and growing sales teams and scaling them and different size companies that I opted out of. And, um, and it's funny, I, I, because of who I am and the way I'm wired, I don't mind. Like, I, I, I guess I have a very varied set of interests. But if I were dead set on being a CRO, I still don't think I would be, it would be a barrier right now. I think that there's, I've done enough and had enough experiences, it wouldn't be a problem. It would, you know, you find mm-hmm. the right company, you go grow, you go do it. But I do think it comes up. Yeah. Why? Well, okay. Well, I was just wondering in terms of of <laughs> the particular role at at Logs IO is is it sounds like is and this is this is perfectly fine and I think that's is that you know being in sales is not always about being endlessly ambitious. I mean, it's also about um, knowing what you're good at and wanting to do that. And this is I mean, this I think this is one of the things that that. I mean, yeah, you could aspire and and rightfully so to be CRO any almost anywhere you wanted, but but you know, I get a sense you're also saying is that you know what you're doing now is is a challenge, and this is really good for you right now. Yeah, and it, your point is such a good one, Andy. I I've managed larger teams, I've managed global teams, I've been an SVP of worldwide sales, which is the equivalent of a CRO. I mean, it's, I had the same responsibilities. Mm-hmm. We just didn't have C's at that company. Right. Um, and I know what that role looks like. 
And it's, there are pieces of it that I like, but I find where I really thrive in what I enjoy. Ugh, God, I am, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to say this. I ran in here like panting, you know, dehydrated, <laughs> <laughs> having to pee, all of that is there, there is something about getting, there's a certain skill set about creating something from nothing or from very little right. when there's very little formed mm-hmm. and creating a culture and a dynamic and getting the right people. And, and I've done that for other companies when I've opened offices in other countries. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's probably, that's, something I really, that's something I really enjoy. I'd rather do that than spend time pouring through Salesforce reports and thinking about territory allocation and what is the scaling if we add four people right. here. It's, it, it just looks different and it's well, not as interesting to me. So I probably haven't been constrained externally. It's just not as interesting to me internally. Yeah, well, I think the the lesson for me, the lesson for people who are listening to this is that, you know, there's ways to still challenge yourself that don't necessarily involve, you know, having to have a higher, a bigger title. And Precisely. And I think it's it's part of the issue that, that some people run into in sales is that maybe they're not motivated. Maybe it's not their motivation, personal motivation to, you know, achieve that next level up. But then they tend to get a little complacent, and they start sort of phoning it in, and and that's where I think where the danger lies is you know people just start always find a way to challenge themselves in the role they're in, and 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 I know it's not an issue with you, but I mean too often in sales, and you've seen this too, is someone that is a perfectly competent, good sales professional that you know starts starts you know using the foot off the throttle a little bit. And that that then, you know, could be a little problematic. And so I, the point is, you know, you don't have to lust for that next title, but you still need to stay challenged. Yeah, and it's 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 just knowing who you are and what makes you tick. Exactly. So there was a guy I talked to um, earlier today about um, an enterprise sales role, and he said, "God, you know, I've got a lot of." friends who are VPs of sales and they've done all these different things. And he said, I'm super happy an individual contributor. I like the lifestyle that I have and I get to, you know, coach my kids soccer games and I just have a little bit more flexibility and freedom. Mm-hmm. And this really works for me. Mm-hmm. It really, And he said, it's not that I'm not ambitious. It's not that I'm not, um, you know, interested in being challenged, but I kind of know what I like to do and what I'm good at. And so that's where I stick. And I, I just thought that's, that's the goal is to, that's what people have to do is figure it out. And so going back to the original question, well, which is what about, I was going to do, right? Yeah. About why aren't women in it? And it, I, 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 another one of my reps said to me today when we're interviewing for this enterprise role, he said, we haven't had, we've had one woman apply that's made it through one. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, I don't know how to get more women interested. I just don't think 
most women are crazy like I am, that they <laughs> want to go. Because you know what? I create my own. We create what we've got. So there's something about this that well, yeah, even we, though I bitch we, and complain about it, um, there's something about it that really works for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't keep doing it. And I, I just don't think it's for everybody. And I think a lot of women opt out because it's just doesn't fit what doesn't fit what they want to be doing or who they are. Well, I also wonder, but a question that came to mind as you were talking is, and I think where one of the double standards exists is that women who make a choice that you know family's important, kids important, maybe put the the career. I don't say necessarily in the back burner, but you know, de-emphasize the the personal ambition aspect of it, and are prepared to, uh, yeah, be an individual contributor at a but at a high level even. But I think somehow some male managers look at them differently than just sort of that lifelong male individual contributor that never really had the ambition. I don't know. It feels like <laughs> it feels like they're, you know, it's like. They're more accepting of the male and less of the woman. It's like, oh, they stepped out, you know, they blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it seems like that, that's why I was asking about your journey. Because I, I sort of get a sense of that when I talk to some male sales managers about this topic. It's like, their perspectives are so conventional that it's, <laughs> it's, it's a little scary. And And you know what, that's... What you're talking about is real, and it's it's really there. That bias is is definitely there, and it makes it it makes it tough. And I think, God, there are you see women contributing in a lot of different in a lot of different places, and I, I think one gets tired of kind of beating your your head against a wall, like let's say in sales, when you figure, you know what, I can just go do something else and not have to deal with it. And I think in the sales role, the bias is so strong mm. for this alpha male. This is what it looks like. This is, it's so strong. And I, I think a lot of it is not even at a conscious level that, um, just why bother? I can do other things. <laughs> I think I think it it gets to that. Well, yeah, well, I, but the the shame is that that we sell into a diverse world and to a diverse set of of stakeholders and decision makers and executives and buyers and so on. Is that that for a sales organization that is not embracing the fact that their diversity should match the diversity of the people they sell to at a minimum? Um, are missing opportunities, right? I mean, it's it's part of the reason I think that we have problems in sort of overall sales performance issues that are so becoming so well documented is that we're having a set of people who in sales who are sort of less matched to the people we're selling to, and thus when you know conversations go into certain areas and and I mean, somebody I was talking to yesterday used a great phrase. They said, you know, the salesperson needs to exist in the neighborhood. They meant the mental neighborhood that where the buyer resides. So if the buyer has got, you know, perspectives or uh, thoughts on certain topics, so on, you know, the salesperson needs to be flexible and adaptable enough to, to respond and engage. And if there's a real lack of diversity in your sales team, then 
yeah, you can't be in the quote, the mental neighborhood of your buyers. God, that's such a great quote. That's so great. It's, it's, I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, good. Well, we'll call it a day then, because <laughs> once oh, I got can that I go agreement. Get, okay, good. Can I go get a drink of water then? Yeah, I know because you don't often get the uh, you don't often get the agreement. So take it while you got <laughs> we'll it. Take it while I got it. Okay, friends, that's it for us today. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll be back with Bridget again next week. Until next time. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, I want to thank you for joining me, and I want to thank my guests again, Chris Ahrens and my friend Bridget Gleason. Join me next week as I welcome Dave Blanchard to Accelerate. Dave is the CEO of the Ogmandino Leadership Institute. We're going to have a really interesting talk about habits and habit development. And of course, no Accelerate would be complete without sharing stories with my friend Bridget. As always, she'll be joining me for our weekly conversation, so be sure to join me then. I want to thank again my sponsor, Discover Org, for their ongoing support of Accelerate. And thank you again for joining me. Until next week, good selling, everyone.